We're coming back to our series on Amos after taking a break for um, a very special Sunday last Sunday when we were able to be part of Tyler's ordination. And we're coming to think about justice and mercy. And in Amos chapter 5, verse 21, there's a familiar verse that has some unfamiliar verses in front of it, probably. And I just want to read that to us this morning. I hate, I despise your feasts, and I take no delight in your solemn assemblies, says God. Even though you offer me your burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. And the peace offerings of your fattened animals, I will not look upon. Take away from me the noise of your songs. To the melody of your harps, I will not listen. But let justice roll down like waters, and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. And Father God, this morning as we read that passage and as we come to figure out what are you saying to us today, Father, we just pray that you would help us to understand that as we prepare for communion, as we remind ourselves today of what an awesome God we worship. Father, we just want to come and please you. So Father, I pray that you would help us to understand your word this morning. Guide my words, guide our hearts as we hear. Speak to us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We're in this series of sermons on the book of Amos, which is one of the minor prophets of the Old Testament. Uh, if you have been part of the first couple, you know we're at about the year 750 B.C. Uh, Israel and Judah have split into two different countries, and they're in the midst of this wonderful boom time. It's a time like they've never seen before, or at least not since the time of David and Solomon, which was about 250 years earlier. <clears throat> they have peace on the borders. They have prosperity within the land. And yet God calls this farmer rancher guy Amos to come. And he speaks this message of judgment to the nation of Israel. In fact, he's warning Israel that if they don't change within about 30 years, a nation will come and defeat them, destroy them, take them into exile, and they will actually cease to exist as a country in that time. And so Amos is one of a series of prophets who comes and speaks to the nation of Israel. And that's the context of the passage that we just read. And Amos comes and he speaks to the leaders and the leading people of the, of the place, and he says to them, God says, I hate, I despise, and I take no delight in your worship. And you got to admit, I think that's pretty harsh. Picture some guy from Edmonton coming down to Calgary, walking into our church and saying, you know, God hates your worship. You've let the boom times take you away from God. Yeah, yeah, I know we're not in boom times anymore. But the question comes to us, how do we hear this passage this morning? What are we supposed to gain from it? And what is God saying to us? through what he said to that nation of Israel. So at the start of all this, well, God's talking about their religion. And what Amos is saying is that God is not pleased with the way they worship him. And he says in that passage, I hate, I despise, I take no delight, I will not accept, I will not look upon, take away from me because I will not listen. And I mean, that's pretty harsh. And then he goes on to list the various aspects of the worship that God doesn't like. He says, I don't like your feasts, your solemn assemblies, your burnt offerings, grain offerings, peace offerings, your songs, 
and the melody of your harps. You sort of wonder what's left, don't you? Well, one of the things in the Bible is when you get a list like that, it never hurts to just sort of count up the uh, individual items that are listed. And in this case, it comes to seven. And seven in the Bible is almost always a symbol of completeness. Uh, the seven days of, of creation, God created everything. And so when you get a seven, what God is saying is, I don't like any of your worship. In fact, all of it offends me. So you've got to figure out what to do with that. I mean, if you went through the book of Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, you would get all these laws telling people they had to do all these feasts, they had to do all these songs, that uh, God loved their worship and wanted them to do it. And you just sort of have to ask yourself the question, has God changed his mind? Does he no longer want them to sacrifice and assemble together? Does he no longer want them to bring offerings? Does God not want them to sing? I mean, David wrote most of the songs and performed many of them. And, and it raises that question about us. Well, what about us? Um, you know, for the uh, in-person services this week, at least, we will have gathered and you've gathered around the Internet to join in on this. Uh, we've sung to music and harps-ish, and we're going to celebrate communion together. Is God saying that isn't what he wants? Does God really hate religious activity? Is it just we should probably just be in the mountains enjoying the first snowfall? And that's where this idea of hyperbole comes in. When the Bible speaks against things, it often uses hyperbole. And if you've forgotten your English from high school, hyperbole is just exaggeration for effect. So in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said, if your right hand caused you to sin, cut it off. Now, most of us recognize that as hyperbole. But for a while, I worked at a psychiatric hospital, and I ran a woodwork program for patients there. And they sent me this patient who, in a previous um, fit of uh, unhealth, had taken his hands and put them through the bandsaw one after the other and had taken off most of his fingers. And in his confused state, thought that that was the right thing to do. Um, when you don't understand hyperbole, uh, well, that's why he was in a psychiatric institution. But what I'm trying to say is, is God is exaggerating for effect, but he has a point behind the exaggeration. He says, I have very strong feelings about all your religious activity. And here we have to read to the end of that passage. If it does not also come with lifestyle change. Because he ends with that verse, but let righteousness roll down like waters, or justice roll down like waters, and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. One of the other challenges of reading the Old Testament is not just identifying hyperbole when we find it, but is also in Hebrew thought, parallelism is very important. So sometimes parallelism is just saying the same thing but using different words. So when he says, I hate and I despise, I don't think we're supposed to make any distinction there. He's just saying, um, I really don't like that. It's sort of like lawyer talk or parent talk. You know, if I say it twice, probably means I'm serious about this. So hate and despise, probably just the same thing with different words. But when he gets to that part about justice and righteousness, I think those we are to distinguish from each other. That is not just parallelism. 
it is two different ways of looking at what it means to be in relationship with God. And righteousness means to be in relationship with God himself. It has to do with a right standing with God. We are righteous with him. Because our sins separate us from God, God sent Jesus Christ into the world. Jesus died on the cross for our sins to um, overcome the separation that we had from God, to be able to bring us back to God, to reconcile us with God if you want. He's taken our sins away and God has made us right with him. We have his righteousness. Uh, Paul puts it this way in Romans. The righteousness of God is through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there's no distinction. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that's in Christ Jesus. So righteousness has to do with our right standing with God. Justice, on the other hand, has to do with our relationship with others, with our relationship with the world. And if righteousness is our right standing with God, justice is our right working in the world. Amos, in the previous chapter, in chapter 5, verse 14, said, Seek good and not evil, that you may live. And so the Lord, the God of hosts, will be with you, as you have said. Hate evil and love good, and establish justice in the gates. And the gate was the courtroom of the day. And he's saying, you know, this country has to be symbolized and ruled by justice. Now, this whole righteous justiceness thing, we've struggled with that as a church. When I grew up in the evangelical church, we were much more comfortable with righteousness than we ever were with justice. We saw churches in the main line, such as the United Church, and they were focused on social justice. They were focused on the issues of the world. And we thought, well, you know, they've lost that emphasis on the righteousness of God. They've lost that emphasis on having relationship with God, on being right with God through Jesus Christ. We preached that Jesus Christ died for our sins and the need for salvation. But we didn't talk much about the justice side of things. It was fun to be part of Tyler's ordination last week. I was thinking back to my own ordination, which was 35 years ago. And uh, one of the candidates at the, uh, you go through this process where they uh, evaluate you. And one of the candidates was talking about how the, the, one of the uh, roles of a pastor is to uh, serve God in word and deed. And someone just stood up and reacted to that and said, well, word and deed is a Mennonite understanding. I didn't think we were that different, but it was a big point for him. I was intrigued in the ceremony where the official wording was that Tyler will serve in word and deed. And I think it's just one of those ways that we've moved. Uh, word and deed to me is righteousness and justice. Uh, the word of God, the deeds of God, uh, we see them a little bit more together today, I think. Maybe like two sides of the same coin. Or even if I dare, they might even be a both and. So when Jesus came and he started his public ministry, his home synagogue invites him back. You know, this is the, the, the boy who grew up here that's made good. And they invite him back and give him a chance to preach a sermon. And they give him a text. And uh, in Luke chapter 4, this is what he says. 
The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because He has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives, recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And I think those two verses are this incredible mashup of, of righteousness and justice. Uh, it's really hard to separate them out, but, you know, he's proclaiming good news, the gospel, righteousness to the poor, justice. And I think what happened in the church that I grew up in, and the church that many of us grew up in, but if you're young enough, maybe you got to miss this phase, is that in our desire not to lose the gospel and social justice, we almost began to believe that a right relationship with God would solve all the problems of both us and the world. Somehow we believed that if you had an addiction and you came to Christ, that addiction would magically go away or spiritually go away. And God would just immediately heal you. And we believed that people that had emotional struggles or just had some um, challenges in their lives would become healthy emotionally if they just accepted Jesus Christ. We didn't believe in counseling and didn't believe in therapy or anything like that. We just simply believed that Christians wouldn't have anger management issues. They, they wouldn't lie. They wouldn't gossip. They wouldn't do all these things. And we believed that the world was a broken place because it had not accepted Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. And that the whole solution to injustice in the world was to help people become Christians, to become right with God. We were working on this righteous dimension the whole time. And I'm not saying that God doesn't heal. He does. And I agree that the world would be a better place if each person became a fully devoted follower of Jesus Christ. But I think when Jesus came and said that we are to make a difference in the world, he meant we are to make a difference in the world as it is. And we are to be righteously proclaiming the good news. But like him, we are to be working with the poor, proclaiming liberty to the captives, recovery of sight to the blind, and all those kind of things. Or as Amos said, we need to let justice roll like waters and righteousness like a never-failing stream. And I just find that interesting language, just that language that Amos uses. Um, he talks about justice like a river or waters and righteousness like this never-ending stream. And I got intrigued by that, so I looked up the word stream. And in Hebrew, it can mean just about anything you want it to. Uh, David goes beside the stream to pick up five smooth stones that he's going to go kill Goliath with. In another passage, um, it's a raging torrent that washes houses away. Uh, the word river covers all that. But it's not the important word in the passage. The important word in the passage is never-ending stream. And if you've been to Israel or you know many countries in, in that kind of a climate, streams are not always full of water. Israel is full of wadis. And a wadi is a stream that dries up for much of the year and only really has water in it in the rainy season. And much of the year, most of the rivers in Israel are just dry riverbeds. And I think that's a little bit of the charge that, that Amos was bringing. He was saying, you guys think you're just like vibrant and full of life and, and your righteousness is so wonderful. And God looks at you and all he sees is a dry riverbed. All he sees is stones and caked mud. 
And so Jesus comes and he says, I've come to bring good news to the poor. I've come to do righteousness and justice. I've come to bring God's shalom, to bring the year of God's favor. And in Hebrew, shalom has a couple of meanings. It's just a simple greeting. You see someone on the street, you say shalom, peace to you. Uh, it, it means peace, you know, in the sense of absence of war. Uh, the Devil's Dictionary defines peace mostly as that time of uh, preparation for the next war. But in Hebrew thought, shalom is this comprehensive good that a people experience. It's when everything is right with the world. And it will find its fulfillment eventually when the kingdom of God comes, when heaven comes to earth. It will be fully established in the end times, as Amos will tell us in our last sermon. But when we pray, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven, we're praying for God's shalom, his righteous justice to come. And I just think when Amos is calling us to this, when he's calling us for righteousness and justice, it's to seek the healing of the world in multiple dimensions. And two weeks ago when Tyler was preaching on Amos, he used a quote from World Vision that I want to just read to you again this morning because I think it's very profoundly talking about this. As Christians, the building blocks of social justice lie in human dignity, human flourishing, and the sacredness of life. The source of social justice is God's perfect righteousness justice, and radical love. So it's interesting how they weave these together for us. Social justice is about creating kingdom space in the here and now, giving witness to the ultimate just society yet to come. I think that's the heart of the message of Amos, that God is calling us as a church to be involved, to be involved with justice issues in the Community And whether they're economic or social or ecological or racial, whatever it is, God is calling us to make a difference, to bring his presence into the world. Now, I think we need to be really, really, really careful how we do that. I think one of the mistakes we made is we align ourselves with organizations and human movements, and we start there rather than God's justice. So we as Christians are guilty of promoting a particular political party or a movement of some sort. And yet all of them, because they're human, have flaws and weaknesses and sin within them. And I think the Bible calls us to work alongside them, but never identify ourselves as a church with them. So let's just get really practical for a moment. Probably the two hot-button issues today in social justice are poverty and racism. Uh, what do we do economically to help people, and what do we do sociologically to help people? It's probably where we're the most divided as God's people, in real honesty. For example, racism. I just simply define that as treating people different because of how they look, because of their skin color because of their facial features. And I think there's three dimensions to racism. And, and you know, we're not going to get into it in a big way today, but I think we just need to, you know, anchor this in some practicality of today. And the first one is that there's, there's personal 
uh, racism and personal. Um, each of us have prejudices, and prejudices are just simply how we feel. For whatever reason, we have a challenge with, uh, and then you choose what you have a challenge with. We have a challenge with poor people. We have a challenge with loud people. We have a challenge with people of color, whatever it is. It's just a feeling that we have. Can't control it. Can't maybe change it, but it's who we are. And then out of that comes discrimination, and discrimination is when we act on our prejudice, when we treat people differently because of the way we feel about them. And it's one thing to feel something. It's another thing to act on that. And sometimes it's even subconscious. We don't even realize we're doing it. But there's this idea, and it's important to get it to start us, that, that we're all prejudiced. You know, we all have feelings. And sometimes we act on them, sometimes we don't. But when we do, that's part of the challenge. The second thing is there's historical racism. I mean, like all countries, Canada in the past discriminated on the basis of skin color and national origin. You read the story of the prairies. We gave preferential treatment and preferential um, immigration rules to white English-speaking people. When we couldn't find enough of them, we opened it up to white uh, Ukrainians and Mennonites who didn't speak our language, but we thought could probably learn it. Um, but especially for people of color and especially for Chinese and Japanese people, um, Canada had a challenge with that. For quite a while, we banned Chinese from entering the country at all after we didn't need them anymore to build railways. We put a head tax on them. We treated our first peoples differently, our, our First Nations people. And, you know, they only got the vote in 1960, you know. So, I mean, there is historically been a part of that in Canada. As in every country, it was part of the, the age, in a sense. And in many ways, we've outgrown that, but maybe not in all. And then thirdly, there was systemic racism. And that is that was racism that was built into the laws and accepted behaviors of our country. So, for example, I think I've used this one a number of times before, but it just, it's just so clear to me. Don's parents, when Don's dad came back from World War II, um, they got married and they bought a house in Surrey in, in Vancouver. And when they sold that house, uh, almost 50 years later, they discovered there was a covenant on that property that said it could not be sold to anybody of Chinese origin. Now that, by the time they sold it in 1996 or whatever, that was no longer legal. But when they bought it, it was completely legal. It was completely um, how all that land in that area had been zoned. Now, over 50 years, Canada has changed significantly. We've become multicultural. We've become intentionally reaching out. And much of that systemic racism has been purged from the laws and practices. But I think there's some residual. There's some hidden racism that, that still exists within institutions and structures. I think it's especially true of our treatment of First Nations and First Peoples uh, in Canada. And our sister denomination, the Atlantic Baptists, have put out a wonderful course that they call Walking in a Good Way with Our Indigenous Neighbors. Uh, we've actually put a link to it on our website and uh, in the sermon notes. And I encourage you, if you're interested in understanding um, 
history and present day situation. This is a wonderful thing. It's, it's done by us. You know, it's done by our sister denomination. It's a six-week course with uh, readings and videos and all kinds of things. It takes about two or three hours a week just to get through all the material. And what we're going to do is we're going to spread it out into two weeks for every week. And at the end of each two weeks, uh, Bill Christison, who's actually doing his doctoral dissertation in this exact area, Bill and I are going to host a Zoom call. And we are going to just have a time of discussion. Just how did you react? What did you see? You know, do you disagree? Do you agree? You know, just, just a chance to unpack what we're learning together. And uh, you'll be getting information about that. But in our personal lives, historically, and perhaps in the present as well, racism is part of uh, who we are as God's fallen people. And I think one of the things that distinguishes us from Bible times is, is our idea of individualism. That is, it's as an individual that I sin, and that is as an individual that I experience guilt and bear guilt. And the Bible has a much more um, collective understanding of what sin is and what guilt is. And it's why over and over again we see in the Old Testament that leaders would confess the sins of their fathers and the sins of history, sins that they did not personally commit, but were committed by the nation. And I don't think we can understand racism, and we'll pick this up another day, and I'm almost done on this, but I don't think we can understand racism if we don't understand sin as more than an individual act, that sin can be contained in structures and movements and institutions. Now, I focused on racism a bit because I just think that's a huge issue in our world today, but it's just one aspect of social justice, you know, is that... Um, Word that we were reading there from the uh, world vision. The building blocks of social justice lie in human dignity, human flourishing, sacredness of life. And then it talks about human trafficking, economic exploitation, human rights abuse, infants dying needlessly from disease and malnutrition. And it's talking about how do we get involved? How do we live out what Amos was calling the nation of Israel on, that they were big into righteousness, they were big into their worship of God, but they were not living out the justice of God. They were not living out the shalom of God in the world. And so as we close this morning, how do we live this out as Christians? Well, one way is going to be this Christmas. And here's another little teaser thing that's coming up. We're in the process of setting up a website with our partners at Canadian Baptist Ministries, which is our mission board that we work with, and with whom we're in partnership in our five-year partnership in Rwanda. And this year, in lieu of giving presents to each other, which we may not um, need, appreciate, or want, uh, we have the opportunity to help orphans and vulnerable children in Rwanda specifically. And uh, we're in the process of setting this all up. You're going to hear more about it in the next couple of weeks as we get closer to Advent. But we're excited about this possibility of being able to just make a difference in the lives of people in Rwanda and in some of the challenging situations that they find themselves in. And it's just a way of living out this 
call of Amos that we keep hearing echoing in our heads today. Let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like a never-failing stream. We're going to come to communion now. And in a couple of moments, we're going to take those elements. And often when we do that, we read that passage that Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians. You know, I received from the Lord, which also passed on to you. The Lord, on the night he was betrayed, took bread and all that. There's a passage that comes right before that. And Paul is talking about the righteous celebration of communion. But he's talking about what does it mean to do it in justice. And here's what he says. In the paragraph immediately before that one, I just started quoting you. In the following directives, Paul says, I have no praise for you, for your meetings do more harm than good. In the first place, I hear that when you come together as a church, there's divisions among you. And to some extent, I believe it. No doubt there have to be differences to show which of you have God's approval. A little heavy on the sarcasm there. So when you come together, it's not the Lord's Supper you eat. For when you're eating, some of you go ahead with your own private suppers. And as a result, one person remains hungry and another gets drunk. In other words, they were coming and having this potluck meal together, but they weren't potlucking it. They were just eating their own. And uh, he says, as a result, one person remains hungry, another gets drunk. Don't you have homes to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God by humiliating those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you? Certainly not in this matter. And he's talking there about this idea of righteousness and justice being held together in this tension. And then he goes on to say as we launch into communion, For I received from the Lord, which I also passed on to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it. And he said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And then he goes on with one more paragraph. And again, it's a paragraph we seldom read at communion. He said, so then whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and blood of the Lord. And everyone ought to examine themselves before they eat of the bread and drink from the cup. For those who eat and drink without discerning the body of Christ, eat and drink judgment on themselves. And when we read that passage, in, in, without reading the, the first paragraph that I read about you know, him getting upset with the way they, they handled the potluck, um, we think that he's saying we examine ourselves before coming to communion to see if we've lived you know, a pure life. And, and that's true, but it's only part of it. He talks about their... For those who eat and drink without discerning the body of Christ. What is the body of Christ? The body of Christ is the church. The body of Christ is how we treat each other. The body of Christ is how we live together. And maybe in a little bit bigger frame, the body of Christ is also the community that we're within. And are we living lives of justice? Jesus said, I've come to preach the good news to the poor, to set at liberty those who are oppressed. To open the eyes of the blind. And the question comes, are we living lives of justice and righteousness? Or have we just felt that all that matters is our quiet time with God? 
And as we gather around this table in a few moments, I'm just going to invite you as we take communion together to just reflect, how can I live out Amos' call to the church that we have justice and we have righteousness? What is it that God is calling it to be involved in? Maybe it's through the gifts of Christmas. Maybe it's learning more about injustice in the world and you want to sign up for that course. Maybe it's about becoming involved in some form of justice ministry in the world, whether it's economic or political or racial or something else, whether it's human rights or orphans and vulnerable children. But communion this morning again just reminds us that our righteousness needs to be lived out in justice. Let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. And Father, this morning we thank you that you have reminded us how much you love us, that you would send your Son to die for us and we can gather around this communion table and we can remind ourselves of that as we take these elements. But we also thank you that you remind us of how much you love the world, that God so loved the world that he sent his son. And Father, we just pray that you would help us to live lives of righteousness and justice, that you would help us not to err on one side or the other, but to hold those in a healthy tension and to seek to live for you and to seek to live for you in this world. And we thank you for that in Jesus' name. Amen.